First Peter chapter 1, as we begin reading in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Studying this passage, it's really a celebration of what has been accomplished for us in the resurrection of Christ. But it's a little bit bigger than that. He's not just being thankful or worshipful for the resurrection, but for what that resurrection accomplished. As we look at the passage, it starts out, he says, Blessed be God, he's worshiping God, he's praising God for our salvation. He uses the word salvation twice in verse 5, it says, "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith for His salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time." And then verse 9, he says, "...obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." And then as he goes on into the next paragraph, uh, salvation is the third word in that paragraph as he goes on from there as well, continuing to talk about this salvation that we experience. And so when we look at the passage as a whole, what he's doing is he's, he's starting out his epistle to these people in worship, in praise. And what he specifically wants to praise God for is the salvation that he gets to experience. And you know what? That's exactly why we're here this morning. We're here this morning doing all the things that we do because of this one thing. We're just so terribly thankful for the salvation that God has provided for us, for the forgiveness of sins, the sacrifice that was made for our sins, and the hope of the resurrection, the hope of an eternal life, which is all given to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. Now, he does use one other phrase in there to identify this salvation as well. In verse 3, he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The phrase born again is used to describe a lot of things around our culture and in society. It can be somebody just uh, having a new lease on life, somebody kind of kind of getting back to the fundamentals, somebody trying to make a fresh start in, in one way or another. But born again has a history in the Bible. In fact, Jesus started out, um, he was in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious ruler of the day. He was a Pharisee. And he comes to Jesus and he says, look, you've got to be from God because nobody can do the things you're doing unless God's with them. And Jesus told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, he'll go on to repeat it in that same passage. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Well, this floored Nicodemus. He said, well, what, what do you mean by that? He said, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb be born? But Jesus goes on to describe to him exactly what that means. And, and when he did, he went back into the Old Testament. He looked back at a time with Moses as the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He says, you remember when Moses was back in the wilderness with the children of Israel and the children of Israel rebelled against God. In judgment, God sent poisonous snakes into the camp. 
the poisonous snakes came into the camp and they bit people and people got sick and they died. But you know what God consistently does is whenever God gives out judgment, He always seems to make a, a way of salvation as well. At the same time that He sent the serpents into the snake, He had Moses take and make a bronze serpent and put it on His staff for Him to hold up. It's still a sign of healing uh, in our society today. You'll see it on the outside of hospitals and ambulances. So Moses took a bronze serpent on his staff and he would hold that staff up. And so if you got bit by one of the serpents, all you had to do was go to where Moses had the bronze serpent and look up at that bronze serpent and you'd be healed. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent upon that staff, the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. And whoever looks upon Him, whoever believes in Him, will be saved. Moses lifting up that bronze serpent way back those centuries before was prefiguring what Christ would do when He came to deliver us. Just so they could be delivered from their penalty for their sin, the, the death by the snakes, by looking upon that. Now, us, through our faith, looking up to Jesus Christ on that cross as He died there for our sins, we are delivered. We are born again. So the term born again in the Bible, what that means is it means that moment that you come to faith in Christ. Because the moment you come to faith in Christ, you take on a new life. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and lives within you. And He quickens you, the Bible says. He, he raises you from the dead. Before that, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But at the moment that we look up to Jesus in faith, we become alive in Christ. We experience that salvation that He has provided for us. Well, we're going to look at several things in dealing with that salvation here this morning. The first is the foundation of our salvation. Because we see in the passage it says that the foundation of our salvation is the mercy of God. It says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. You know, God didn't have to do anything for us. He didn't have to send His own Son to be our Savior. He didn't have to provide a way of salvation. He would have been completely just, completely right in just allowing us to face our condemnation. But He didn't. He didn't because of who He is. God in His great mercy caused us to be born again. He's, he's done it all. He's sacrificed His Son. He's the one that puts the Spirit within us, that gives us that new spiritual life. It all comes from God. And that's what the passage is saying, is that God, because of His great mercy for us, He causes us to be born again. He's the one who gives us the new life. He's the one who instigates it. He's the one that brings it to pass within us. Not only that, but we also see the accomplishment of our salvation. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All the way back in the beginning, you see when we entered into the problem. You go back to the time of Adam and Eve and in the garden. And God tells Adam, He puts them in the Garden of Eden and it's got all the trees you can imagine in there, all the fruits and everything to eat from. And God tells Adam, you can eat from all the trees in the garden except for one. He just put one tree in there to test him. One tree so that Adam would have a choice. And he says, from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. And he gives him the warning, or you will surely die. Well, we know the story. Eve takes the fruit and she eats it. She gives it to Adam. He eats it. And here comes death. But it's a kind of an amazing thing. Because God told Adam, he said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the day Adam ate that fruit, he didn't die. You could say that he died in a sense, in a spiritual sense. Because... You know, physical death is what? Physical death is a separation of our soul, our spirit from our physical body. Now, Genesis chapter 35 verse 18 talks about a death of, of, a, of a woman as she gave birth. And it says that it came to pass as her spirit was departing 
because she died. That's what happens. It's a separation from our spirit and our body. You know, spiritual death is a separation from our spirit, from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins until God makes us alive in Christ. And so what is, what is that death? That spiritual death is, is us being separated from God because our, our sins, our iniquities, separate us from God. And so you could say that Adam died spiritually because that day he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He was kicked out of the presence of God. And so now he and God are separated, so he is definitely dead spiritually. But physically, physically he didn't die. But that's only because God in His mercy allowed a substitute. God took Adam, who had tried to cover himself up with fig leaves, which would be totally ineffective, and God took the life of an innocent animal and used the hide off of that animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their guilt and their shame. And so there was a death that day, but God allowed something else to die in Adam's place to provide a covering for his iniquity. And you know what? That's what we see all down through the ages is we see the death after death after death after death of all these animals that are being offered up for sin to cover the iniquities, to cover the sins of the people until finally we have the one death that they all pointed to. And they all pointed to the death that took place in Jesus Christ as He died on that cross for us. He took our death upon Himself. But if it stopped right there, we wouldn't be here this morning. If it stopped right there, there would really be nothing to celebrate because it would just be another gruesome, ugly death carried out at the hands of the Romans as they nailed people to the cross. But it didn't stop there. Christ rose again from the dead. He overcame death. He got victory over death. And, and you know what the awesome thing about that is? Is when He got victory over death, He was getting victory over my death. He was getting victory over your death. Because it's your death and my death that put Him there to begin with. He was paying our debt. He was, he was overcoming our foes. He was fighting our battle. You know, it's kind of like, remember back, we talked about David and Goliath. And oftentimes we think, well, the story of David and Goliath is that you can fight your giants because if you've got God on your side, nobody's bigger than God. And that's, that's true. But it's not really the primary story of David and Goliath. Remember how we talked about the primary story of David and Goliath is that you have Israel shaking up on the hillside before Goliath and then this David who represents Christ comes in and defeats Goliath for you. That's the core meaning of the story of David and Goliath. David, who is a type of Christ, comes in and defeats your enemy for you. If you're going to put us into the story, we are not the Davids going up against the Goliaths. We are the Israelites shaking up on the hillside. Jesus Christ is the David that went up against our enemies. And that's the point. When Jesus rose again from the dead, He was defeating our enemies, which is death. He was paying the price for our sin. And so the accomplishment of our salvation is through the death and the resurrection of Christ. He says He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I came to Christ when I was 20 years old. And before that, I just, I just figured I was okay with God because, you know what, I lived a decent life. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy measuring me by my own standards. But, you know, if that's how we get there, then why did Jesus die? If we can get there just by being a pretty good guy, then, you know, then we can do it on our own. Jesus didn't need to die for that. But that's the whole point is you can't get there just by being a pretty good guy. We might be pretty good people as far as measuring ourselves among ourselves, but when we measure ourselves by the righteous standards of God, we fall short. We don't make it. You see, we needed Jesus to die. We needed Jesus to rise again from the dead. And He did that. And in doing that, He causes us to be born again. He gives us that salvation that we experience. He accomplished that for us. But now He spends most of the rest of the passage talking about, well, then what are the results? What are the benefits that we get? 
The first one that he points out is a living hope. He says you've been born again to a living hope. Our hope, as we look forward, it's all about life. It's not about death. Let's uh, examine for a few minutes the teachings on the resurrection in the New Testament. The first thing that we see is in John chapter 11 and verses 24 through 26. And what's happening at this point is Jesus is going to a funeral. Jesus got word that Lazarus, a close friend of his, was sick. And Jesus uh, waited to show up. And the disciples, uh, they're a little bit curious because they see Jesus get news that Lazarus is sick. Jesus has been healing people, so obviously you'd go heal a good close family friend. But uh, Jesus decided not to go there right away and He held off. Finally, after waiting a little while, He tells the disciples, okay, let's go because Lazarus is sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, he'll be fine. It's kind of like me. You know, whenever I get sick, I just want to go to bed. One is because it tends to, if I get the rest that I need, then it tends to make me feel better. Two, if i got to be sick, I'd rather be asleep for it than awake because it's not very fun. And so uh, they're saying, they're, that's what they're thinking with Lazarus. They say, hey, if Lazarus is sleeping, he's going to be fine. We don't need to go now. And Jesus said, I don't mean asleep in that sense. I mean, Lazarus is dead. And so when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He gets confronted by the sisters. And they're like, you know, if, if you'd have been here, we know he would have lived. And he tells them, you know, it's okay. He's going to live. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she responds that she does. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus, not just it's not just that he provided resurrection for us, that he is resurrection. Jesus is life. Then when we get to Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, For if we had been united with him, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in the resurrection like His. And, and the discussion here in Romans is about baptism. He says, look, in your baptism, you picture your relationship with Jesus Christ. You united yourself with Him in His death as you were put under the water. That was a picture of Him being dead and buried. And you also are united with Him in His resurrection as you came up out of the water. That's a picture of His resurrection. In our faith, we are united with Him in His death. We are united with Him in His resurrection. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which the entire chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus, many different things, but the part that I want to focus on is in verses 20 through 26. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits were whenever they would harvest their crop, they would take the first part of it, just the first part of the harvest, and offer it up to God as a, as a way of saying thank you for the rest of the crop. And uh, as an act of faith, saying that they know that the rest of the crop is coming. And so that's what he says Jesus is. That Jesus, as He rose again from the dead, is just the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, there's a whole lot more yet to come, which is us. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end when He delivers up the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so in this passage He says, look, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. He's just the first fruits. He's the first one. The word first indicates what? A whole bunch of others to follow. There's going to be the second and the third and the fourth. And He says, what's the rest? The rest is when Jesus comes back. When He comes back for us, there's going to be a resurrection. Now, the Christians in the town of Thessalonica had a, had a struggle with this. 
They're waiting for Jesus to come back, but He's not coming and He hasn't come and He hasn't come just like He still hasn't come right now yet. It's coming, but it's not here yet. And what's happened is some of their family and friends have started to have died. And they thought, well, wait a minute. We, were, we all put our faith in Jesus and we were waiting for Him to come back for us, but now some of them have died. What's happening to them? Did they miss it? And the Apostle Paul writes to them, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so he writes to them and just basically tells them a couple things. He says, look, their, their, their death didn't get them out of anything. They're still going to experience life in Christ. In fact, it's interesting the way he describes it. He says when Jesus comes back, all the people who have died in Him will be coming with Him. So in other words, when we die, our spirit is separated from our body. Our body goes in the ground. And our spirit, just as the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, it says Jesus, He's going to be bringing them with Him. So the spirits, the souls of all the dead in Christ... You can't hardly call them that because they're alive with Him. They're going to be coming back and their bodies will be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. He says that will happen first. He says then the rest of us who are still alive will be caught up to be with Him in the air. Now that word caught up is a word that means rapture. But the first resurrection actually takes place in a couple stages. started with Christ and then when Christ comes back, all the dead in Christ will rise and be reunited with their spirits. And then Christ will take up the believers from off the earth and then we have that time of tribulation. And actually, I think we're already into that when it comes to that point. At any rate, you'll have a, a time of intense tribulation on the face of the earth. And at that point, the people that are on the earth will have a choice to make. Either they will bow down to the Antichrist and the beast who's operating at that time, or they will trust Christ. And you see, the reason I bring that up is because that's the last part of the resurrection. In uh, Revelations chapter 20 is where it talks about it. And it talks about the people that don't take the number of the beast, the people that don't worship the Antichrist, because if they refuse to do those things, they'll be put to death. Well, what happens to them? Well, they're the very last part of the resurrection. At the end of that tribulation time, when Jesus comes to sit on His throne and to judge, He will raise those people, and they also will be a part of what the Bible calls the first resurrection. Now, the reason that's important to get that understanding is because the Bible talks about two resurrections. The one we want to be a part of is the first one because that's a resurrection to life. The other one is a resurrection to judgment. Christ is the first fruits. All the believers in Him when He returns that are resurrected, all the people that did not take the number of the beast that turned to Christ during the tribulation, that's all part of the first resurrection. And then in Revelation chapter, the end of chapter 20 and 21 talks about another resurrection where it's a resurrection to judgment and to condemnation. That's where everybody else gets raised too. But they don't get to go into the new heavens and the new earth. They face the judgment and the wrath of God in an eternal perspective. But we have life. We have this glorious resurrection that we look for. We have this awesome hope that no matter what happens to us right now, we have life 
Christ is coming back for us. If we die before He gets here, He's going to raise us from the dead. If we're still alive when He gets here, we're going to be caught up to be with Him. That is an awesome living hope. But then not only do we have a living hope, He also goes on to describe for us this inheritance. In verse 4, to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. You know, there isn't anything that we possess in this world that can be described in those ways. Everything that we have or anything that you get that's new, that's uh, shiny and glittery today is going to fade. Everything tarnishes. Everything ages. Everything corrupts. The closest thing maybe would be the, the gold that he talks about later in the passage. But he says our faith is more important than that gold. Notice several things about this inheritance. The, first of all, the inheritance that we have from God is permanent. It's a permanent inheritance because of all the things that we just read. Look, it's imperishable. These are the things that Jesus told us to live by. Remember, He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because the moths eat it. The rust consumes it. Thieves break in and steal it. It's just not a good investment. He says, if you really want to lay up a treasure, lay it up in heaven. Why? Because up there it is being kept in heaven for you. Up there it is imperishable. It's undefiled. There is no moths. There is no rust. And so he says, look, this inheritance is, first of all, it's permanent. It's unfading for you. You know, it's kind of like the way the Apostle Paul described the resurrection and, and, uh, and our resurrected bodies in, uh, back in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, talking about our bodies dying and being put in the ground and decaying, he says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. You know what, I'll tell you one thing. The older I get, the more meaningful those verses become to me. Everybody around my age is nodding. All young people are going, what? I'm telling you, it's coming. <laughs> the older I get, there's just more aches, pains. There's... I'm not going to bore you for too long with it, but for a couple minutes. Sometimes you get out of bed and you got five steps before your feet work right. You know, and then and on other days you can get out of bed and you're, oh, my feet feel pretty good. Oh, what's that in my hip? What's going on with that? You know, all my life I've loved hot tubs. We just got a hot tub last year. I haven't been in. I got in it the other day. I haven't been in it for five months. Because I got some weird rash. Never had a rash before. These bodies, they're winding down. You know, I used to jump off things. I don't jump off anything anymore. Not a thing. I'll wait for somebody to bring a ladder, whatever it takes. You know, that's the thing is our bodies, they just, they wind down. They're, they're perishable. And this passage talks about what we get in our inheritance. In our inheritance, we are going to be imperishable. What is sown in weakness is going to be raised in strength. Our very mortal bodies are going to take on immortality. And that is going to be a glorious inheritance. Well, not only is, uh, is it a permanent inheritance, but it's also a protected inheritance because it says in verse 5, "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith..." for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God is guarding us. He's protecting us. It's kind of cool because it's all in, all in the same context of us enjoying this inheritance. And it says that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It's protected for us. But we, still down on this earth, that we are guarded by God also. 
But then not only is it a, a protected inheritance, it's also a persevering inheritance because it talks about how does that happen? Through faith. In other words, we will persist in our faith. We will persevere in our faith. And that's how we experience the protection of God in our life. This inheritance that we have is an awesome thing. It's being kept up in heaven for us. It's a permanent thing. It can't fade. It's not going to go anywhere. God's holding it up there for us. Same time He's guarding that up there for us. He's guarding us down here. He's protecting us. And we're growing in our faith and persevering in our faith before God, growing stronger in our faith. Our inheritance is secure. But you notice in the passage, all of that inheritance, all of it is in the future. It's looking forward to the future. There's two different phrases that he uses here. In verse 5, he talks about through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then a little bit farther down in the end of verse 7, it says that this results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he's looking forward to this inheritance and he's saying, look, you've got this inheritance, but it's yet in the future. What's happening now? What can I expect in my life right now? And that's what he tells us in the next few verses. He says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So you know what? If you've you've experienced trials in your life, struggles in your life, hardships in your life, it doesn't mean that you don't have that inheritance. You do. That's locked in. That's, That's secure. But God might allow some various trials and struggles in your life at this moment. But why? Why would He do that? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You see, God allows trials to come into our life to test the genuineness of our faith. Why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why didn't He just leave that one out back in the Garden of Eden? It was a test. To test the genuineness of Adam's faith. Do you trust me or do you not trust me? Why does God allow trials to come into our It's test. And tests do two things. Any teacher will tell you. A test measures what you've learned and it also strengthens what you've learned. There are things that I know today because I got them wrong on a test and I've never forgotten them since. And that's what God does. He uses tests in our lives to both test is their faith genuine and at the same time that testing of our faith will strengthen our faith. It will build our resolve. And then notice he says, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. You know, that's how they test it from what I understand, silver and gold, or how they purify silver and gold. You just, you put the heat to it. And when you put the heat to it, it melts and it boils and all the imperfections rise to the top. And you just keep skimming the imperfections off the top. And I, th- I heard a really cool illustration one time. A guy asked somebody who was doing, I think they were doing s- silver, and he said, well, how do you know when you finally got there? How do you know when you've gotten all the imperfections out? And he says, then I can see my reflection in it. And I thought, man, that is such a cool analogy because that's exactly what God is doing with us. He puts the heat to us. He lets the trials in life put a little bit of heat to our life so He can skim the imperfections off the top. And what is He looking for? His own image within us. But God says, you know what? If you think gold is valuable, that is nothing compared to your faith. What God is most interested in is you. He says that's much more valuable. So if we're going to be going through some struggles, some trials during this time, if we're going to have our faith tested, how do we know if we're passing the test? Well, he gives us about four answers to that question. First of all, he passed the test by loving him. In verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. So what God wants us to do as we go through those trials and struggles is grow in our love for him. But there's more than that. It says also that we are believing in, in him. Because he goes on to say, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. 
And then it also points out that we rejoice in Him. And this word rejoice was, was used earlier in the passage as well, talking about that experience that we have as we, as we come to Christ. Even when we're going through struggles, if we're, doing, if we're facing struggles with Christ, there's just a joy in it. Because even though you might be going through a hardship, you know that you're doing something right. Even though you're going through a struggle, you know you're not going through that struggle alone. And so how do, we, how do we pass those tests that God allows to come into our life? We know we're passing the tests if we're growing in our love for God, if we're growing in our faith in God, and if we are, find ourselves rejoicing in the midst of hardships. And so we need to join with Peter today in praising God for our salvation. The foundation of our salvation is the mercy of God. He accomplishes it through the death and the resurrection of Christ. The results of our salvation is this living hope that we get to look forward to. We're thankful for this inheritance, this inheritance that is permanent and protected and persevering. And even for the test, we have to be joyful even for the test because it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate the growth that He's given to us already and to be strengthened in our resolve to love Him more, to believe on Him more. And in all this, we greatly rejoice.